Okay, so I have this problem, and the problem is that I digitize my negatives using an Epson V600, and which is not bad. Um, it does have the limitations. It's only 35 millimeter and 120 that it can do using the, the, the light in the lid and scan natively. Uh, I have done some experiments with a light tablet that I put on top, um, and then I do a uh, a scan as if it were reflective material, uh, just what you would call a normal scan, not a negative scan. Uh, and I I'm just really unhappy with those results. Well, um, my scanner has quit communicating with the light in the lid. I've plugged it, unplugged it, plugged it back in, and that's not doing anything. I've done a full power cycle and I've, so I need to replace my V600. So what I did was I went out and I ordered a used V700, which will do four by five and greater in size. So uh, part of what I'm uh, looking at, um, we we're all shooting at least four by five negatives, if not larger so um, what do you guys do for scanning and digitizing your negatives? And um, is there, um, you know, we've got um, Hamish, by the time we, uh, this comes out, you know, we may have our pixelators if you backed it, I did. Um, so uh, what do you guys do for digitizing your larger uh, negatives. Nick, what do you think? What do you do? So uh, I have, for 35 millimeter, I have a, a dedicated film scanner, something called a Prime Film XE. Uh, and that works very well. It's it's um, it's slow, but it, it does high resolution, high quality scans with a lot of dynamic range. And that's the main thing for me is, is that I like to, you know, to take it to do a single scan and have detail in the shadows and highlights both because that's what film is good at, especially uh, print film. So, you know, that's important to me. But uh, for bigger sizes, I looked into the 120 size film scanners. They're very expensive and you're limited to 120. Um, and so early on, I started using a macro lens and my digital, their various digital cameras uh, to simply take a photograph of the negative. Um, and I use a, a simple light tablet as a backdrop and I have an old uh, copy stand, you know, I got for 15 bucks used that holds the camera uh, parallel and, you know, I can change the height. And uh, the main thing is that for me is that I'll take two to three shots, depending on the size of the negative, and then um, stitch them together uh, because that can give me, you know, I... The copy camera has a has a standard two to three uh, uh, ratio on its sensor. So if I'm shooting any of the medium format or bigger sizes, there you would have you would only use a portion of the sensor to get the whole thing in. So by simply taking two or three shots and stitching them together, I can not so much get really high resolution as get you know better uh, better sample. And one of the reasons I, I tend to oversample a little bit is also I think you get better color that way. Um, uh, it feels like you do. It's oversample a bit and then reduce it later. The colors look nicer. The dynamic range is better. Anyway, I've been doing it this way for a really long time. 
it's fast to shoot a whole bunch of stuff with a digital camera, and then you have to process them one by one. So I know that flatbeds like your V700 are probably a little faster and a little more convenient, um, but I really like what I've learned and the kind of quality I get doing it this way, so I'm not in a hurry to, to change my, my methods. Okay, and, so <laughs> I, have a, I have a question about this Prime Film XE. Um, mm-hmm. Can you do... Uh, can you scan um, like sprockets? Can you go out? No, past, no, one at one at a time. Crop? No, no, listen to what I'm listen it, to what I'm does, asking. Will it does crop? Will yes. it? Okay, and you can't you can't um, see like the the edge of the frame. No, you can't, and I can see the edge of the frame just barely. So okay. it it crops out the sprockets. But there's there's often a little sliver if I need to take a sample of the of the red background. There's there's enough to do that, um, you know, for print film. But uh-huh. but that's all. And and that's fine with me because I really don't want to see sprockets around my pictures. Uh, uh, but no, it can't do that. OK. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, th- and that's that's super important to me. Um, I have a, I have a thing and I've said it a, a bunch of times on the podcast. I, when I present my photographs, I present it all the way out to the edge of the frame that the camera captures. Uh, and that's part of my challenge to me to make sure that you can, uh, that when I frame an image, I frame it, um, and, and I don't then crop. You know, uh, that, and that's just a challenge for myself. I'm not um, giving yeah, you know, anybody rel- any stick for cropping. <clears throat> Relatively few of your cameras actually show you that through the viewfinder, though. Most of them are a little under 100%. So, you're right, sh- exactly. You're sh- yeah. But I mean, it, it, although almost every rangefinder does, because rangefinders use lines. That's uh, true. You know, uh, and and I shoot very few slrs ethan what do you do for this um usually i like to lay a grid over the negative and then use a pencil to draw the tones of each grid pixel onto a piece of paper and then i scan <laughs> that on a uh, flatbed uh, so <laughs> no in in which ethan becomes a jackass okay so <laughs> <laughs> okay so in all seriousness i have an old um Epson Perfection is the generation before the V. It's like the Perfection uh-huh. 4980 or something like that, uh, which will go up to two four by fives, um, and I'll use uh, that oh, for really? okay. anything from 35 millimeter to four by five. But then also I have uh, Nikon Macro Bellows with a slide copying adapter for uh, I stick it on the A7, and uh, uh-huh. I just I use a flash against a white roll paper background rather than some wonky. Uh, you know, fluorescent uh, so light box that I have. Um, that, and was, that was really my debate. Um, so do I get a new scanner or do I get uh, an A7? Yeah, get an A7. Um, so basically, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's hands down, like, better. And if you want higher uh, resolution, you can just do sort of like a pan and stitch. Um, uh-huh. and, and then so for really large stuff or what I've been moving towards is just, you know, using a laser cut mask, much like the pixelator on a um, opaque piece of white acrylic, and then just putting that on a stand um, in front of, but, you know, away from a white roll paper background, which, 
you know, the uh, light box is fine, um, particularly an LED light panel, but I've got these old nice, um, you know, X-ray film light boxes that make banding uh, at certain oh. shutter speeds with the A7. So I've just wound up using a studio strobe up against a white backdrop and then, um, you know, a foot or so in front of the white backdrop, I have a white piece of opaque acrylic and then I can put anything, you know, up to 11 by 14 on it. Not that I shoot that big, but I, I've uh, done that and it worked really well. The, yeah, the super flash good. method. Yeah. Okay. I just, uh, on, mine, on mine, I aim the flash right at the camera and put a sheet uh -huh. of paper in between the camera and the flash. And that worked mm -hmm. too, um, if the distances are right. Okay. Uh, Matt, what do you use? Uh, hey guys. Uh, so if, well, when I'm shooting four by five, uh, I end up using my Epson V550. Um, I just lay the negative on the, uh, right on the glass and I, I scan one half. And then I slide it over, I scan the other half, and I put it back together in Photoshop. So luckily, yeah. I don't shoot enough that that's, uh, I mean, that's an ordeal, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't shoot enough to warrant um, the investment in a, in a, a V700 or 800 or 850. So yeah. it, it, it works. And it, you know, it's painful to do, but it's, it's rare, uh, luckily. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that was kind of what I was trying to <clears throat> avoid. I don't want to do a whole bunch of stitching. Um, and uh, what I've, my experiments in the past with stitching uh, have been um, underwhelming. And my uh, experiments with using a camera uh, have and stitching that have been underwhelming. And I've got uh, I've got a copy stand. Well, actually, what I have is, um, if you guys remember back, Nick traded me a um, an enlarger for um, for an M5 and and a camera and stuff like that. No, wait, the other way around. I got a camera and an enlarger, and he got an M5. And um, the uh, and I just I use that stand. Um, I, I just I 3D printed a part that will fit into the coupling for the enlarger itself. So I use that up and down, and it's just I'm I ah. So you I I, I spent quite a bit of time before I got good at it, but once uh -huh. I got good at it, it turns out to be a really excellent method. Um, yeah. But you 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 know the big thing was actually figuring out the processing because yeah. it's how to get that film feeling and color back out of the digital files that you end up with. And that's, right. that's actually where most of the action is. All, other than that, it's, you know, a decent lens and a good light source and keep everything parallel uh, and stop right. down, you know? And so it's a little bit tedious, but once you're set up, it's very fast because it's a click yeah. of the shutter and then the next, you know, click next, click next. And also another thing is a good thing that holds the film flat. Um, and the yes. one I use is like a little, it it allows me to shoot several frames before I have to reset the film. So that's another big advantage. So a, a nice wide film holder that holds the film flat. One of the things that I use uh, in my scanning is I have the Lamography. Um, oh, man, I had it in my brain and just, just left. Uh, it's the film holder that allows you to scan yeah, that's what sprockets I use. on 35 
the what what is what's it called? Um, uh, okay. Isn't that the digital um, digitaliza? Yeah, digitaliza. Yeah, that's it. And I have one. I have two for thirty-five, and I have one for one twenty. And of course, I I have the two for thirty-five because I thought I was buying one for thirty-five and one for one twenty. So uh, I just bought some extra because I wasn't paying attention to the listing. And um, so it, it, I love the way those things work on my Epson. And I have a little spacer to keep everything flat and level and all that type of stuff. So so anyway, I'm just uh, – uh, did any of you back uh, Hamish's uh, Pixelator besides me? Yep, a resounding no, we didn't. Yeah, um, so. Already had so, it years ago. My, yeah, my problem is right. I don't have a good enough digital camera. <laughs> I yeah, have to buy and, a camera to go with it. Yeah, and I was, you know, I was kind of also thinking about of it as a film holder, but I'm just wondering if it even allows sprockets. And I've not asked that question because I think that uh, Hamish would have keeled over and had a heart attack at that point. <laughs> or I don't or think he, I, I don't think he cares about your sprockets. Graham. Yeah, well, well, or anything like. I thought I mean, you can also writer. you can also always just stick one in, you know, a medium format carrier so long as the film is flat. Yeah. You know, well, press the book right. and, and, yeah. and then and you get I this. can I can print gates. Um, I can three D print gates yeah. for for myself, and then I can sell them and I can make money off of uh, Hamish. So I think uh, you need, I think you need to make a product called the sprockolator or something, which uh, <laughs> which adds sprockets to other kinds of film. You know, you could. Yeah, I just use an Instagram filter for that. Yeah, there we go. There yeah, we go. <laughs> Everything's Velvia okay. frame 25. So, so on that note, what do you guys say we start the homemade camera podcast? Oh, yeah, that's good. Good. Today we have with us Matt Beckberger. Uh, some of you who, those of you who have uh, seen our zine, the Homemade Camera Zine Volume 1, and we're going to do another one in the summer, so uh, get your pictures ready, get your cameras ready. Um, you, you will know uh, Matt Beckberger, and uh, he's, um, uh, he had two cameras in that zine. And um, he also has a fun, exciting Kickstarter running right now. But uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, um, let's start off. We'll 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 talk about your uh, upcoming Kickstarter. We'll we'll talk about your cameras. But how did you how did you end up uh, being a uh, camera building nerd like the rest of us? <laughs> What was uh, what was your path? Cool super cool. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I mean, I I do I really like to make stuff in general. So when I got into film photography, or when anything I get into generally, uh, it sort of subdivides into two categories. There's like the base hobby, and then there's making stuff for the hobby. <laughs> uh, so 
um, like, for example, I was obsessed with guitar pedals maybe 10 years ago, and I got obsessed with making uh, guitar pedals for a little while, and I, I almost barely ever even used them. I just liked making them mostly. Um, so whenever I'm like, I'm into something, it, it just turns into like making stuff for the thing. So once I got into film photography, you know, I mean, in film is kind of, you know, these days it's kind of inherently DIY because you're like trying to figure out, you know, what you can shoot and, and you get fixed cameras sometimes. And, um, if, you know, if you want to shoot black and white, you know, economically, you, you know, you really should develop it at home and stuff. Um, so, it, you know, I think, I think that, film photography is well suited to DIY. And I think that that kind of, um, got me thinking about it more and that spun it into more and more, uh, making stuff for the film, like, um, you know, making, well, starting with making, um, cameras and, and working on other equipment too, as it, as it goes along. Um, so I think that was the, the, the genesis of it. Um, uh, and, and also like, you know, well, I mean, a camera fundamentally is kind of pretty simple that it's, you know, a way to control light and, you know, the, a way to hold a film and 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 uh, and then it's just all kind of accessories from there. Um, so I, I started making pinholes originally. The first thing I made was a pinhole um, and then I made a few of those and then I decided to graduate to to a lensed camera. And my first lensed camera was the six by 17 that I built that was in the the first uh, edition of the homemade camera zine dang that's um that's not Oops, a beginner's yeah. um <laughs> uh, yeah so uh, you can and you can see that in the zine just um you can see pictures from it and of it in our zine so hey can um, i back this so, up a little bit uh sure before we get to talking about cameras like matt uh yep. are you some sort of engineer uh i went to school for uh electronics engineering i went to like well, what we call college, but you guys call community college um, for electronics engineering um, technology diploma. Uh, and while I was there, actually, what what got me started really making stuff was I uh, I needed to build an enclosure for an electronics project that I was building. So the electronics teacher was like, "Well, go down to the you know mechanical engineering department and uh, see if they'll let you you know they'll help you out in the machine shop." And once I got in there, I got exposed for the first time to metalworking tools uh, and became like completely obsessed. Uh, and I, I every like every semester I would get my um, I would print out my weekly uh, schedule and I would fill in all the gap times. I would color them in so I knew when I could go to the machine shop to work on stuff in between my uh, in between my classes. Um, and I just got obsessed with making stuff and like, uh, learning how to use the lathe and the mill and working with sheet metal and welding. And it just totally spiraled out of control after that. Uh, you know, just, just trying to trying, like, it was like, it was like the whole world was kind of unlocked there. Like I, I had never really had, I'd had exposure to like woodworking before that, but, um, when I got into metal, it was like it was this totally new world of, of of possibilities that I somehow had been pretty much oblivious to all through high school. Well, my high school didn't have um, uh, like any vocational programs. Uh, so I was just, you know, I just stuck with basically just computers until I got into college and, and found like actual, you know, things to do with your hands uh, and yeah. got pretty much obsessed with it right off the and bat thing about metal is that now you can make tools you've got the tools to make tools and so they're they're all sort of stop being any limits at that point 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's my other hobby is making tools that make tools for my tools or make tools that make more tools <laughs> or make tools that make it easier to make tools. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it's it's a are, definitely a self-propelling uh, obsession as well. You're our uh, our cyborg version of the AI overlord that's that's coming to us uh, because <laughs> you're making to make the tools that will enslave us all. Well, uh, I don't so, I don't write I don't write any AI software, so I mean I don't um, think you know I don't think like the the the, the weird cameras can uh, they won't become sentient you know. <laughs> Not oh. yet. Hey, <laughs> okay. hey, Matt. Do so you make? How do I? Un... Okay. So anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it on track. Uh, hey, Matt, how do you make <laughs> things for a living? How do I? No. Uh, oh, like, oh, do I? Yeah. Do you do you, uh, build electronics or or physical objects for a living? Is that is that part I, of your job? I do. Yeah. I work. Uh, I work for a small company that works in. Uh, we make equipment for pipeline safety. Um, and so we essentially Alarms and sensors. Kind of fancy voltmeters kind of thing. Um, but I, it's a small company, so I do all the 3d modeling. Um, I do, um, I do some of the design. I do a lot of the troubleshooting. Some of the, some of the more advanced design we, we outsource to, uh, a, a contracting, uh, firm, but I do a lot of the troubleshooting and verification stuff. Um, I do, I do, I do all the product photography for the company too. Uh, and kind of, you know, mishmash of jobs. And then we also have a 3d printer there. So I, I spent a lot of time like 3d printing assembly jigs and, um, alignment jigs for the, for the, uh, for the assemblers, um, you know, for, for drilling holes and stuff. Um, and, and drawings for the like sheet metal shop that makes, you know, the brackets and stuff. So I, I do, I do a pretty varied, uh, pretty varied work. And I can get, you know, I get a chance to, you know, sort of work on my generalist uh, skill set. So, Matt, what? Um, sorry, well, I'll do this for. Uh, so, Matt, what else are you uh, interested in making besides cameras for for your hobbies? Um, a lot of stuff. I mean, so I have, so uh, I have a machine shop in my garage now. Um, I've got a I've got a full size uh, Bridgeport style milling machine, um, and I've got a, a modest lathe. Um, I've got a surface grinder. I've got some welding equipment, and I end up I do end up spending a lot of time just making more tools. Um, that's uh, I have a bad habit of just making more more accessories for things. But like sometimes I'll get an idea um, for a tool that I want to create or or some modification for a tool. So I. I spent a lot of time uh, futzing around with that. Um, my other hobbies, um, geez, I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's like making tools is one hobby, and then photography is the other hobby, and then they overlap a lot. But I actually have a bad. Like a lot of people have asked me, like, what do you actually use these tools to make? And I frequently struggle to answer that question um, to their satisfaction because mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time just making more. You know, like well, if I'm making like setup blocks or something for my grinder like that's that they're like okay what what are you talking about i I rarely have something that's like a good like uh you know succinct uh answer (laughs) to those questions all right well let me ask you this so like um clearly if you have a lathe you spend a lot of time making lathe tools right because they don't really exist commercially in the same way that you can make them but 
uh, do you make other sort of hand tools, hammers, chisels, pliers, wrenches, uh, that sort of thing? Or are we talking about sort of sophisticated electronics tools like um, meters, which clearly we'll get to, or uh, software tools or, um, yeah, what, what, what type of, what are the last like uh, five or 10 tools you made? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I assume I mean, a lot of like jigs and fixtures type of thing, but I mean that that always leads down another rabbit hole of making yeah. something else with those jigs. Well, like I have, I like I spend, or I've uh, I've done a lot of like you know making like adapters for stuff. So like um, for my lathe, or so I have a little tiny rotary table for my mill. Um, it has a little four inch chuck, and I was thinking it would be it would be nice um, um, to have a way to hold large pieces of work on the lathe, um, that wouldn't, um, kind of, uh, that are, that would be hard to hold, uh, mm-hmm. or hard to, hard to, 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 um, support with the tailstock. So I made a, uh, an adapter that would take that little four inch chuck. Oh no, it's a three inch chuck. I'd take the three inch chuck and I bought a, I bought a really cheap, um, live center, um, from the hardware store from princess auto, which is like our Harbor freight up here. Um, our like cheap Chinese store. Uh, and I, I made an adapter plate that would let me put the chuck onto the live center so that it would spin with the workpiece. So you just clamp the workpiece in this tailstock chuck, and then the headstock drives the piece, and, and now it's supported. But you could support like a piece of tubing or something like that uh, without, uh, you know, you could grab it on the inside or something. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you have the very, you have the flexibility of a chuck um, to, to overcome the limits of like, even even like the the large um, tube holder uh, end pieces for for tailstocks and stuff. Um, I made I made a quick little um, Arduino based um, air quality sensor that turns on my air filter uh, in the garage. So it it blows air through um, a, a, like a dust particle sensor basically, and when the air gets above a certain um, like it's supposed to be some PPM or something, but I just kind of have a knob to set the set point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when it detects that the air is getting dirty, it turns on the air cleaner, uh, and runs it, um, like in three minute, in, uh, intervals until the, uh, air's cleaner and then it shuts itself off. Um, what else? Uh, I made like a dust, I made a, a dust shroud for my shop vac. So I, so I, I bought a, a shop vac. Um, and then I bought a, a cyclonic separator, um, funnel, if mm-hmm. you've seen those things mm-hmm. and, uh, mounted that on a bucket and put that on the thing. And that was great. And then, uh, I was like, I, I bought this surface grinder and, and, uh, surface grinders, uh, I bought that last year and surface grinders make a big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I wanted to build a, like a, a, a dust shroud, a, a dust collector for it basically. Yeah. But I didn't want to use my wood dust collector cause I don't want all that. Well, first of all, sparks going into the dust into the wood dust collector would be a bad idea. So I so I uh, made like a, a shroud that uh, I can hook up to the two and a half inch uh, dust collector hose, and then the majority of the dust actually does seem to end up down in the in the bottom of the cyclone. Um, and then I put an extra bag filter in the in the actual unit to collect the rest of the dust, uh, and that works really well for the metal dust coming off the the grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, oh, I built a I built a I mean, yeah, these are all still tools. I built a, yeah. <laughs> a couple of years ago. I built a, a heat treating furnace um, awesome. out of uh, fire brick. I, I uh, found a local place that sells um, refractory bricks for making pizza ovens, and uh, I ordered some uh, high temperature uh, canthal wire and uh, wound a wound a coil. I had to build a coil winding jig 
um, because my lathe wasn't long enough to to fit uh, to try to use my lathe as a as a coil winder. Uh, so I built a, a coil winding jig and uh, I made this big long uh, electrical coil and then it's got some relays and stuff and it runs off it runs off 220 volt power. Um, I put it. Uh, 20 amp outlets and uh, two to the power of my uh, my entire um, garage properly, uh, and then so that I built this 220 volt um, furnace that that I think pulls like 3,500 watts when it's uh, when it's running, uh, and it can get <laughs> it can almost get to a thousand degrees Celsius. Um, it it takes it probably two hours to get to about 950. I haven't pushed it much further than that, um, but it works really well for doing like um, pack carburizing. Um, I really need to figure out more projects to use it. I, I made a, I made a new set of vice jaws for my milling machine vice, uh, hardened vice jaws. I was thinking um, lathe tools and knives and chisels. So it would be yeah. good for knives for sure. Yeah. I, you, I never made a knife, but, uh, that would be a good. When, when you're ready for a bigger forge, let me know. <laughs> I've built a ton of forges and, uh, there are, once you can forge, then there's a whole other, uh, kind of. For tool making, there's a whole other thing that opens up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've never, I never got into the forging, um, but well, I, I fussed around with like a blowtorch and a tiny little anvil, like when I was younger. <laughs> but mm-hmm. never, uh, I haven't got into like you know real forging with like serious, you know, multi hundred pound anvils and uh, and you know pummeling uh, red hot steel into <laughs> real shapes, just like. Well, don't. Bits. Don't do that. It's Don't much it, too no. much too cold at red. You need to get it up to a high yellow. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Also, we got 3D <laughs> printers for that these days. Come on. Oh <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'll uh, you 3D print anything you want, and I'll forge something, and we can, we can beat <laughs> on each together. other. Yeah. <laughs> if you can 3D print a lathe cutter, I'll be I'll be pretty impressed. No, I, but uh, I could 3D print a jig to grind a lathe cutter. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's a good idea. I think it's interesting that that you made so many vacuum adapter pieces. Um, I last year made a so I have a friend who was using an angle grinder as a tile saw, and it was just yeah. like ruining his house with dust. And cool. so I made him a giant shroud that went around the blade, and then had an adapter for the vacuum cleaner. And actually, just yesterday, I was um, teaching my friend Daryl, who's in charge of the wood shop down at the makerspace to 3D print. And he showed up with a um, file that he had made, not optimized for 3D printing, but we'll fix it, <laughs> which was exactly for uh, an adapter for a dust collector for a vacuum for some piece of woodworking equipment. I, I feel like vacuum adapters are just like uh, everybody at some point who's making stuff <laughs> has to make a few. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I made a little one. I made a little skinny one uh, for the two and a half inch that can go into the T slots of the mill table, so I can suck all the chips Ooh. out of there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gonna make one of those. <laughs> I want to shift the conversation a little bit um, towards the, cam- the cameras that you <laughs> made. Um, and no, I the tool conversation is very interesting too. I'm just. Uh, I'm, uh, I've been looking at your uh, 6x17, and I've been looking at the images that were in the, the zine. What, uh, why did you um, start with a 6x17? That, you said that was your first camera that you made, right? Obviously, that's right. incredibly yeah. simple. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I um, wanted to build something yeah. that was radical. Like I wanted, 
I wanted to build something that wasn't um, something that was kind of common, right? Like if I wanted to shoot six by nine, I could go get a, you know, a brownie or something. Um, So I wanted like, so I wanted something that was really different. And, and, um, and, you know, the prices, I mean, the prices on those six by 17s are really high, like the Fuji ones, like they're, you know, they're nice. They're certainly nicer to use uh, than mine, Uh but, but they're kind of prohibitively expensive. Um, And beyond the lens, there's really, there's really not a lot that you need there. Like, as we know that, you know, they're kind of deceptively simple, uh, you know, roll film, right. 120 roll film cameras are, are deceptively simple. So I knew I could make it. I just, so I, I bought the lens. I think that was like, I think it cost me like $300 Canadian. And then the rest of it was, um, I think it only maybe costs like $40 in material. It really wasn't, um, mm-hmm. it wasn't major. Uh, you just kind of have to $40 have the know how. in material and like uh, $10,000 worth of time. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, well, I don't bill myself for time, so it was okay. It ended up costing <laughs> nothing. <laughs> but, uh, well, so at the time, actually, I was, that was about five years ago, and I was I was out of school, but still living in an apartment. I hadn't, I hadn't bought a house and, and built my workshop yet, so I, I built that one. I, what I would do is I would sneak into the school. Well, not sneak in. The school was basically unlocked in the later hours, but the machine shop was closed. So I would, I would go in there, and they had sheet metal tools that didn't take any power. They're all manually operated. So I would use the – I'd come in with the, the sheet metal, and I would use the shear and the punches and stuff to to, to um, cut up the pieces and bend them. Uh-huh. Um, and then um, the only other tool – I had a cordless drill that I used to for drilling all the holes in it and countersinking. And then uh, I did use a table saw to cut the wood uh, end pieces. Um, and then okay. um, I, I don't even remember how I made the little wooden um, like round over grips. I think I might have just cut some cut the cut a chunk off of a dowel, kind of cut the face yeah. edge off the dowel, and then uh, and then uh, stuck it on there. Um, but it was done with really minimal tools because uh, I didn't really I didn't really have access to to too much at the time. And then I, and, I had a little. Sorry, go ahead. And, and I was just going to say uh, it, it's that's all very reasonable um, in, in that those are the type of tools that uh, are are readily available with the exception of the punches and the sheet metal bending. Um, yeah you know uh although i'd like to say that um once you've used the the real machinery you can actually figure out homemade solutions like i've made i've made sheet benders and things you know uh i mean you can you can make versions of that stuff pretty simply with clamps clamps and boards and pieces of metal and that kind of thing it's true yeah and even even uh if you're just doing small bends um like i think that camera i could have done all the bends with one of those um you know, Harbor Freight um, uh, bending jaw sets for a for a bench vise, right? Right. Um, where they, you know, they just go in there with magnets, and then and then you've got, you know, depending on how big your vise is, you know, four or six inches of bending width. Uh, but there's ways to cheat in order to bend larger pieces too. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, there's there's you know there's exploits. Like I still don't have any any proper sheet metal tools, so I'm I'm always like yeah, clamping stuff to edges of tables and hitting it with a mallet until it <laughs> until it reaches the right angle. And, and, I, and that works <laughs> perfectly fine. I mean, so, it's not as nice, it's not as quick, it's and it's not generally as clean, but it's as functional uh, often yeah. in the end. Um, yeah. Uh, Nick, you were going to say? 
Oh yeah, it's that that you're forging already. As soon as you're uh, directly forming metal, that then you're forging, and you know the the point of the heat and the big machinery is just that you can do it on a larger scale. Right, right, yeah. So one of the images that you included uh, with the images of the camera was a 3D model, 3D mock-up of that um, uh, uh, of the camera. That's Did right, that yeah. come before or after the build? Did that you... was before. Okay, so you were you were figuring out the parts, figuring out. So you were using that 3D model in order to um, work out how to how to make it. That's right. Yeah. So um, I, I I'm not an artist. I know Ethan's been talking about getting like doing more sketching and stuff. Uh, and uh, I my I do my sketching on the computer now because. I mean, short of short of uh, just trying to write something down before I before I lose the the thread uh, of the idea. So much easier. I, I'm ter- I'm truly terrible at at drawing anything uh, useful. So I uh, so I, I usually do it on the computer, and the computer solves stuff for you, which is nice too. And then it goes right to drawings you can print out that you know. Um, so I knew I had I knew I I knew my you know my my uh, access for tools for that project. So I. Um, I knew, I knew, like I, I, I started with, I drew, you know, the six by 17, uh, you know, negative, um, uh, 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 the film gate basically. And then I, I had the lens of the Schneider, uh, 90 millimeter F8. And so I knew the, the, uh, focal distance for that was, I think 92 millimeters from the, from the face of the lens board. So, uh, I took the lens. I drew. I drew a, a, like a basic 3D model of it. I just measured it and and uh, and drew a, a basic model, uh, and then just started working from there. So I you know I made an assembly where they were they were lined up, uh, and then just started you know extrapolating like, well you know I drew two 120 uh, 120 uh, film rolls. I drew the um, um, you know like that started just kind of drawing the sort of triangular esque uh, shape around it. And then just kind of kept refining it, um, and and figured out I would make you know kind of wooden walls uh, and a sheet metal back, and two sheet metal plates for the top and bottom that were essentially uh, uh, identical to each other, mirrored images of each other, and uh, just pieced it together like that, and uh, and that worked great. And the design ended up working really well. I printed out the sheet metal pieces. Uh, well, I so I use SolidWorks to to model. Um, and it's all where you can make sheet metal parts that then the software will flatten out for you and give you um, bending instructions and stuff. So you you can design a sheet metal part, flatten it out, print it, and stick it on your your metal, cut it out, and bend it, and you know just kind of follow the follow the design. Um, and that that's pretty effective. So I I did that um, especially for there's one complex piece the the film gate piece um is is kind of complex um there's actually an instructable for that camera i used to write a lot of instructables uh, articles mm-hmm. um and if you search for six by seven six by 17 camera on instructables you'll see pictures from the build process um and you'll see there is one sheet metal piece that's fairly complex um that it, that has it's the film gate and then the sides that that protect the 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 120 spools from lens light and then that also forms part of the front where the where the handles mount, the little handle nubs uh, attach. Uh, and uh, um, but other than that, it's all relatively straightforward pieces. And there's, I'm sure that there's ways that if you if you did not want to bend at all, you could totally get around uh, all that. 
complexity that there would be like alternative ways to design that would that would avoid that stuff yeah you could always make just simple boxes if you're if you're impatient but I think it's a lot of fun to start building more complex shapes. And the the rule of thumb for what you're describing for people who don't necessarily use a computer is if you can make something out of paper or cardboard, out of flat parts, um, you make a template and bend it by hand until you like it, then that's something that can be made by bending. And then if you can't make it out of flat paper or cardboard, then that means you need to either forge or carve. Uh, or cast you need some way to develop compound curves Mm -hmm. Um, and that's there's i kind of got into this because i like you i have uh, serial obsessions and for quite a long time i was obsessed with boats and and figuring out how they you know how they were made and designed and uh and that there's a long tradition of drafting complex shapes to design boat hulls that is a really great place to start for this kind of thing Hey, Nick, um, yeah. how, how have we never talked about building boats before? Who knows? Who knows? I, we, yeah, we're going to go on a tangent about cedar strip canoes and guide boats uh, later. Matt, are you into boats? Uh, not really. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, how un-Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he doesn't have a canoe. My God, its secret is out. Well, <laughs> so, so uh, there is a tremendous, um, as uh, Ethan just hinted at there's a tremendous uh, range of ways of making complex forms to make boats that goes back for thousands of years so it's a great place to start for for designing complex three-dimensional shapes the basic idea is that you would if you you can do it in reverse you can start with a like a carving or a small shape and then imagine slicing it up like sliced bread and those cross sections um, when you add them end to end So if you imagine, say, starting with a French baguette, you know, it has pointy ends and it's fatter in the middle. When you slice it up, each of those slices is a cross section that defines a a point in the in the way the form develops. Um, And then if you picture there are ways to then translate that into a drawing that contains all the information you need to reproduce the form. Um, And it's it's very uh, it sounds simple, but the more you do it, sort of the more you learn. It's a, it's a fun process, traditional boat design. Of course, now you can also just buy a program that does the whole thing. Um, but the problem with that is uh, you're just accepting the machine's sort of solution or average. And there is still something to be said for for doing the, the thinking yourself. I like a computer doing all my thinking for me. <laughs> oh, your computers aren't thinking yet. I know. I know. <laughs> There, there's uh, nothing more satisfying. So, oh, sorry, yeah. I was just gonna say there's nothing more satisfying than when you design some part and then in the computer you just click, you know, show volume and it tells you the volume of the part. Like, oh yeah, to well, try to do something yeah. like that would have been, you no, know, there are, an incredible ordeal. There are fascinating tools for that in boat building. So because there are conventions in boat building, they were able to develop very early on, uh, sort of, it's sort of slide rule like tools for doing exactly what you're describing, but it's still very laborious. You're right. It's mm-hmm. that part. Calculating volume is slow. Uh, but in reality, the way it, I know people who design boats professionally who were in that kind of era where they bridged between the old way and the new. And the, 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 the actual truth is that the boats being designed now aren't any better. Mm-hmm. They are able to build, they're able to design them faster 
with less effort, but they're not actually better boats. <laughs> and I think that's the final, kind of the final. Uh... So Wait till you uh, see my uh, 3D printed boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's, that's, uh, only a lot of sections. Pictures. That's Ethan's favorite pickup line in the bar. Yeah. Wait until you see my 3D printed boat. Uh, okay, so uh, um, let's see. Uh, I, I want to uh, continue on with the 6x17. Um, a couple of things. It, it, there's no uh, focusing helical on this. There's no. So it's hyperfocal. Is that what you set it to? Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's somewhere near there. Um, oh, okay. I. <laughs> I actually, and that was the other question I was going to beg. Go on. <laughs> I did uh, when I was when I was building it. It did end up a little long, mm-hmm. and I uh, I had to take it back to the table saw. Actually, after I had had put the f- finishes on it too, which was which was stupid. <laughs> um, so I, I it went back to the table saw for ah. for a moment, and uh, I'm. I, I now I now am better enabled to, to actually test how how good it is. Um, it, yeah. It's it's okay. I don't shoot it wide open out of for, out of fear that my my crimes will be revealed. Um, so I usually <laughs> stop it down to like at least f sixteen. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and, and, and that's <laughs> perfectly reasonable for a camera like this. And and one of the things uh, hyperfocal if you have it set right to hyperfocal at say f16 or 22 on one of these lenses um you have a hell of a long range um of of areas in apparent focus so there's nothing wrong with that i think even at infinity with this lens at f22 it's like 10 feet and beyond yeah even at just infinity so like you're yeah you're fine you know hyperfocal by an extra you know a couple of feet on the front end probably but it's it's really uh, I mean, I, I bought it for landscapes or, or I, right. I built it for landscapes. So, um, that, you know, I, I really wasn't concerned about that as long as, as long as, you know, it, it gets infinity, then that, that was all I was concerned about. Sure. Plus I think that kind of predated, at least pre, certainly predated my knowledge about these, these cheaper, uh, uh, focusing helicals. Cause, um, I remember at the time, I think I had looked at it and, you know, the, the matching helical from Schneider was, you know, the same price as the lens, basically. So I said, well, I right. certainly don't, I certainly don't need that. <laughs> I'd rather not double and, the cost of the camera. <laughs> yeah, and I know when I was first looking at those, um, there were some that were available from like B and H that were ridiculously expensive that were made for large format lenses, and yeah. um, you know, and and now we, you know, know get a a $22 um, M65 and put a lens board on it and screw it into something and you're good to go. So yeah, it's, it's nice. respect, I mean, you I, lose the markings, but it's not worth 15 times the price <laughs> right, <laughs> just to get the, right, just to get the exactly, scale. Exactly. And this, um, is, and this kind of, this kind of reminds me of what we were just talking about though, because the, I've been doing this for a while and no matter how careful you are with your calculations and no matter how precise your inputs are, it always seems that a high percentage of the time anyway, you never you have to fuss around with fine tuning to get that perfect infinity focus point. It's I, there's just enough variation in the in the different uh, lenses and shutters and setups. And it 
it's never yeah. perfect until you've messed around with it. Uh, and yes. if you look at all those old folders, all those old folders, um, you know, were shimmed. Um, you know, those those six by nine Voigtlanders all had shims on them. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, say if you can't make it perfect, make it adjustable. Yes. Right. Exactly. Amen. understand you have a very exciting kickstarter going uh you want to tell us about that sure yeah so uh i started a kickstarter for uh what i'm calling the well i'm so i'm starting a company uh that i'm calling reveni labs and the first product is uh, a very very small uh shoe mounted light meter for uh your film camera um so the the idea is uh, if you've got a camera that doesn't have a meter or has a, a meter that's gone bad, uh, such as a selenium meter that's no longer uh, light sensitive, this meter can slide into your accessory shoe or your hot shoe and give you uh, essentially the, the best uh, replacement for built-in metering that uh, you can get. Um, so it's a it's a it's a very small digital meter that runs on a, a single LR44 coin cell, um, and it can function in uh, aperture priority or shutter priority modes. Um, you set your, you can set your ISO. There's uh, exposure compensation. Um, there's uh, uh, it also has extended range, so it can go from like ISO one to ISO 12800. It can go from uh, f 0.7 to f 1024 now um so it's good for pinhole users and the okay. shutter can go yeah, from the shutter can go from uh eight minutes to one eight thousandth of a second um and then it's it's got all the all the stops in between um in in like the common one stop intervals essentially okay um, so, so that's the gist of it and it, it it's compact. It, it'll fit right on the shoe, and it's not much wider than the shoe. Am, am I right on that? That's right. It's almost the same size as the shoe. It's uh, it's uh, about three quarter. No, it's it's slightly more than three quarters of an inch by three quarters of an inch by uh, five eighths tall. Um, okay. The volume is. Um, what do we, what do we have? Half that of a cubic inch. Measurements. Do we have world measurements on that? Uh, metric. Yeah. Metrics, yes. Yeah. Uh, or I had them memorized. I forgot them. In Canada here, we're 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 like double. We 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 try to be like double-minded up here. Right. We, <laughs> um, I know. We're I think it's 19 way. by 19 <laughs> by 15 millimeters. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I think it weighs it weighs 0.3 ounces or eight grams. Okay. Uh, grams the weight, not yes. grams, not grams the person. That would be um, very heavy. You would not be able to lift your camera. No, that would not be portable anymore. Yeah. Um, which is eight grams actually is the same weight as our two dollar coin that we have up here. Okay. Um, so it's it's very very light. Uh, it's made out of uh, 3D printed nylon, um, uh, using a technology called multi jet fusion. 
um, which is uh, sort of an extension of of the uh, of the laser-based technologies, or it, it produces similar results to the laser-based technologies um, that have been around for for a long time. But it uses nylon powder and a and a binder and heat to produce um, a uh, isometrically stable part. Um, and it has very good uh, like surface finish uh, feature uh, quality is very high. Um, the the material has uh, really good uh, heat properties. It's actually so like the glass the glass transition temperature of PLA is like 60 degrees Celsius. ABS uh-huh. is like 110 degrees Celsius. This stuff is 175 degrees Celsius. So it has uh, it has really high uh, heat tolerance um, compared to other uh, thermoplastics. Okay. Uh, and um, the prints you can print without any support structure um, because during the printing process the, the the powder bed supports the print. So um, you can do a lot of really intricate features. Like for example, on the bottom of the of the shoe mount, there's little lever springs that are printed in um, because not every camera like some cameras have springs built into their sh- to accessory shoe, um, and some cameras don't. Some cameras is just a bent piece of sheet metal. Um, so there's there's springs that are um, printed right into the uh, to the bottom of the shoe mount, um, and then um, there's also like internal springs and stuff. So I've I've been I've been leveraging the the value or uh, leveraging the abilities of this technology to um, create a more um, basically a more complex product that's also simpler in a way because it's it's only uh, there's only three pieces um, of the uh, of the enclosure. There's the top, the bottom, and the battery tray. So it's um, it's it's complex, but it's all one piece, and it's uh, I think that that will improve reliability over time. Yeah, it, and sounds, are you, it sounds great. Are you printing those yourself, or are you um, sending them off to be printed? I'm not. Um, the the a multi so a multi jet fusion machine setup um, probably 50 would fifty. I don't think At fifty least. even gets you a machine. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, fifty is like the bottom end you can uh jeff perry used to work on building these things for hp uh, okay. we've okay. had some long conversations about mj mjf when i uh when i was speaking to the so actually i i get my um my prints done through a distributor as a as sort of a middleman a machine distributor and i think he was saying that, that an installation with the powder processing um machines and the and the like post-processing uh, and cleaning setup and ventilation. Oh yeah. Like you're looking at like $150,000 to install <laughs> yeah. um, US. So yeah, these okay. are not, these are like, I know that, you know, 3D printing when it comes to, to um, production products generally is not sort of seen as being like a, like a, like a mark of quality, but these right. these are leaps and bounds beyond you know this is not this is not a bang good uh, two hundred dollar printer um, sort of finish level and and for such a tiny product um, you do need um, you know the 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 flaws of of FDM printing um, become more apparent when it gets really tiny like that um, so but but what and the other really nice thing about it is that you can get prototypes done that are identical to your final product right so. If you if you were using let's say MJF to prototype an injection molded part, well, your prototype might be great, but the part that comes out of the mold that you're going to have made may not match. <laughs> for lots of reasons. Yeah. So. Talk to Hamish. Yeah. 
yeah, poor Hamish. He was, I was talking to him and he was telling me about the trouble that he's had and the, and the costs of, uh, the, 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 the back and forth and cost of, of his injection molding, um, saga. It, it's, uh, hey, I'll admit it sounds scary. <laughs> hey, Matt, have you been following it at all? Like, um, I think there's the Lisa is out now and the, uh, fuse one should be coming out this year. I mean, those are not MJF, they're SLS, but they're very similar technology and, and sort of part quality. Uh, and they're, you know, right around 10 grand. I've been pretty excited about these things sort of hitting the market in mass soon. Um, is, is that something you're interested in? Or um, I don't know. I've, maybe not I, either. I've been building a relationship with this, um, vendor for these uh for these parts and um with the with the prices i mean i don't know if it would be worth the trouble to look at actually bringing um a cup a powder-based printing you know if it was sls bringing bringing that uh you know in-house uh yeah, i mean just the air cleaning currently it is literally annoying. in-house so yeah <laughs> i'd have to think about renting a place uh mm-hmm. to keep it so that so it's it's not something that's crossed my mind um I've been sticking to FDM at home just because of that. Uh, I mean, there's such a huge, it's still such a huge jump, you know, like if you want higher quality, you can go with, um, SLA, but you're not going to get the same part strength and that kind of thing. It's not, it's not going to be quite like, you won't be able to take what you do in SLA and sort of maybe translate it to another part, uh, or another, another production sort of level technology that, um, they may not. It may not translate well. I've actually never. I've never printed an SLA myself. I've never oh. had prints done or 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 done any myself with a machine. Um, so I'm speaking also out of ignorance. Um, so I, I've been learning a little bit about SLA of late. I bought an SLA printer, and I have a friend who okay. actually prints housings for some electronics he makes for the bomb squad and SWAT teams um, <laughs> out of SLA resins and. The tolerance and like the the dimensional accuracy, I would say, is actually better than SLS or MJF um, from an SLA machine. Um, The annoying part is there's, you know, a million different types of resins and they all have different qualities. And so for me, um, you know, there's some dimensional accuracy uh, that is derived from the resin type, but mostly like. Um, different resins are either stronger or, you know, more durable or harder. And, uh, those two things, um, are not necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, right. and, and often harder means actually more, <laughs> less strong, more brittle. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I have some really nice hard pieces that are perfectly dimensionally accurate, but you know, I can shatter them if I want to flick them. And so, yeah, they're not suitable for use kind of. Yeah. Well, right now, uh, my buddy Jeremy has managed to print some stuff that like takes, you know, a a lot of abuse and impact. Then again, it's not hard enough for me to print gears out of. And so, uh, man, I, I need to spend about a month, uh, mixing all sorts of different resins, uh, with a face mask on and figuring out like what, how hard can I go before the thing starts, uh, chipping, but, um, I, I would encourage you, uh, with some of your newfound, uh, cash, uh, for 250 bucks, you can buy a tiny SLA printer. I've got an Elegoo Mars and, yeah. you know, it's not a production machine, but it's 
fun to play with and makes things like I can print half millimeter thread pitch uh, threads that come out perfect with no trimming that work. You know, that's pretty cool. Excellently, uh, you know, finer than the the lines on my fingerprints, um, which is crazy to me. Um, it might make but, a good way to test MJF designs too, because that it's definitely closer than FDM in terms of print quality. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, it the may not be is, may not be suitable for use, but it may be uh, you know good for for dimensional confirmation and stuff. Yeah, I mean, so. I'm going to get it to suitable for some use, but uh, I think right. the issue with it is it's going to be so much more accurate than MJF or mm-hmm. SLS uh, because, you know, you still have the the particle size of uh, the powder you're using. Uh, That's right. The resin is basically, you know, the particle size is uh, infinitely zero. And, and so, you know, for me, like designing things on FDM, printers or designing things for an SLS machine is like almost a totally different model by the time you tweak all of the, the interlocking and thread tolerances. And so I think, man, I, I would encourage you to buy one and play with it. I think um, you were one of the people that might push the abilities of such things further, but um, man, if it, if it works in SLS, I don't, I would not assume that it works with the same tolerances in any other process. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. So uh, I, I'm going to take a little tangent on this uh, away from your light meter, uh, but still within this um, system, this this nylon system. What were what were the letters for the nylon system you're printing? What's MJF? The, uh, MJF. Okay. Yeah, so is fusion. this reasonable? Okay, multi-jet fusion. Is this reasonable to do a uh, full-size camera out of? Um, so I'm just gonna yeah. let you speculate. Um, Panamicron the, does it. Yeah, Panamicron has been using okay. MJF for his cameras. Um, okay. One of the problems with MJF is that if your part is too simple, uh, it's not it's not cost effective to do it with MJF. Okay. So if you were trying to print, you know, a coffee mug, um, uh-huh. you can do it, but that might be like a, yeah, it's a hundred dollar coffee okay. mug. And you probably okay. could have done it better uh, out of, you know, a solid block of of uh, of Delrin or something and had a machine shop make it for you that way. Um, mud works traditionally. You know. mud, yeah, there's a special <laughs> kind of mud that they use normally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for okay. small parts, right, on a, on a printer with a huge bed, you can just mm-hmm. fill the bed entirely with parts in MJF or SLS. So, like... You know, uh, I'm sure Matt's light meter case does not cost very much per part so long as he's making a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars worth of them at a time. It's yeah, okay. actually, um, the, the quantity I need to I need to. So um, with the larger machines, I think I get 40 sets of pieces for like. So the case is three pieces. I get 40 sets um, per like layer, essentially. And then. And then they'll actually let me buy the number of layers that I want, so I could buy one layer out of the build. Um, so I can print them. I can print them at the lowest price that they give me in sets of forty. Um, and and it's quite economical that way. Okay, so just so we're clear, on Monday, March 9th at eleven thirty-six a.m. Eastern, you need six hundred eighty-three sets. So. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, actually, that's backers because some people may have bought multiples, might have backed it for multiples. So you, there's a lot of people who backed it for multiple. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm closer so, to seven. I'm over 750 right now. 750 uh, individual uh, sales or individual uh, units, meters, right? Yeah. Units. Yeah. Okay. Plus, plus a lot of people. Um, actually, let me just open the dashboard here because oh, I just cracked 600 percent. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, there's another, like, so then, uh, it says your 53 people have also ordered one accessory, uh, 25 people have ordered two accessories and 10 people have ordered three accessories. Um, so, and then there's a few upgrades for some of the two packs, mm-hmm. two packs plus two accessories. So I've got okay. another, at the moment, another, probably almost a hundred accessories to go with actually more than a hundred accessories now to go with. Mm-hmm. So there's five accessories that I've got. There's like a double shoe expander so I, if you've got you i want to know how many people have ordered the ring mount <laughs> the ring, well so i actually don't know yet because yeah um it's yeah. through backer survey that they're going to tell me what they want and then i order the quantity oh, okay. that I need. um but there were um when i posted the ring mount on uh, instagram there were some people saying like i want that so i figure i'll get a right. few uh, i yeah. may not get I, I think it's an interesting yeah. approach um, <laughs> you know as, well, okay, so you're shooting three cameras that need light meters. You don't have to move the light meter from shoe to shoe. You have it on your ring. You know, you just I, – I really like that idea. I uh, actually think more people will buy the wrist strap. Okay. Because <laughs> um, yeah. there's, yeah. there's a wristwatch style mount. Um, so if you order that, then you'll get like a, like a, a single-piece uh, NATO watch strap, like the um, – they call them NATO style, where it's like one piece of of woven nylon with a with the normal um you know belt loop kind of uh attachment. Um, yeah. and then and then it's got the shoe on top, so you slide in there and then you aim it just by like checking as if you were wearing a wristwatch. You Spider-Man. just aim it. Yeah. yeah. No, not Spider-Man. Not, not straight arm, sidearm, like checking no, a watch. I see. I see. Yeah. So hey. with it with a uh, PC cord, can I use that same attachment to create like a light bomb that I wear on my wrist with a with a no. strobe? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, hey, Matt, have you seen the old um, Hasselblad light meter wind knobs? I've seen pictures of it. I've never seen one in real life, but I've seen I've seen okay. pictures of those knobs. Yeah. So I, I've bought. Some oh, they had a watch strap. Just, that's right. Yeah, that's where I was going. Um, I thought it was You're right. Dumb. They I saw, were nicer on the camera, but uh, I thought that I was looked that up, and I only ever found uh, a picture of a catalog that had like uh, one of those stylized photos of it in there. Yeah. But I've never actually seen a photo of a real one, <laughs> even even so, just a photo of an actual one. In my uh, camera buying and selling days, I've bought and sold dozens of these, and once in a while I would come across one with the watch strap. But I never came across a watch strap that wasn't just like totally disgusting, and I had to throw mm-hmm. out sell the knob (laughs) oh wait i have another idea a clip so you can clip a cold shoe upside down to the bottom of your build hat and you can have this hovering in front of your eyes at all times no matter what camera you're using okay Um, you can read it that close (laughs) no no i can't but you'll just have to put a little uh a little uh loop on it a little loop yeah or or uh, then you would need like uh, a telescoping rod that you would move it out to the point that you could read it, and then you could push it back in. And Matt, uh, just don't listen to a lot of what he has to say. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so um, I 
what led you to this? What what were the steps that sent you to making um, this this uh, shoe mounted light meter? Um, well, it started originally that I just kind of wanted to build a light meter. I thought it seemed like um, like an interesting thing that I could build, you know, and like, you know, a lot of my projects are things where I'm sure I could buy it, but they it turns into a, a make project, a make work project mm-hmm. maybe too. Um, and then um, I was, I was um, I'm trying to remember the exact kind of inspiration. Like there, you know, there's the Voigtlander VC2, which is a really mm-hmm. nice meter. Um, it's but it, less it's, good, I've never actually seen one in person, but I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty expensive. Um, and then, um, I had seen, um, the Lumu meter for iPhone and I saw that that was really popular. Uh, that sold, I think a couple thousand units on Kickstarter when it was on there. And I was kind of thinking like, it seems like maybe people have an interest in, um, some kind of like convenience meter. And I've got so many cameras that have dead selenium meters, um, and then also like I like shooting my Mamiya 645, but I don't have a, a a metering prism for that, so I I don't like having to go out there with a with a with a separate light meter if I if I don't need to because um, I don't like carrying it in my pocket because I worry about dropping it, uh, but I don't like wearing it around my neck because I have a habit of, it just gets all tangled up. So I try to like wear it you know with one arm through the neck through the next um, lanyard and and all that stuff and it's just it's just unruly I find. So I thought it would be really nice to have a shoe mounted meter, but they're all kind of big. Like, especially if you put it on something like a Mamiya 645, like it's hanging way out there. Like if you put a VC2 on that thing, like it's it's standing on the top of this pyramid, you know, on top of the prism. It's it's floating in the wind there. Um, it's probably going to get smashed or something. So I wanted something that was little that would that would work well. And then I thought, well, if I'm, you know, I mean, the accessory shoe is an obvious place to put it. What if it was basically the size of the accessory shoe. So I kind of set that as a, as a target, um, to make it, uh, as, as tiny as the accessory shoe, um, you know, in that little roughly three quarter inch print. Um, and then, yeah, I just thought like, you know, maybe there's a market for this, um, because, because people were buying, well, I did see that, you know, Ethan, uh, Ethan was selling the butter meter, um, like, and that was just, I was already like well down the, the rabbit hole on this project when, when Ethan started with the butter meter. Um, but that I saw that people had bought that and that it was sold out on his website. And I thought like, this is just more proof that people want this kind of thing. By the um, way, it was sold out because I haven't made any more because I was planning to make almost exactly this meter, but now <laughs> I will not, um, yeah, Matt, I have been sorry, taking Matt, myself you, for a I, week. I, Matt, I, I, I was worried I was going to come on here and, and um, that maybe you would. Uh, I, I guess I did kind of eat your lunch a little bit. Oh, and yeah, I didn't yeah, mean yeah, to. No, I absolutely. hope I hope you don't think that I that I no, tried to skirt I your mean, idea. No, it's not it's my idea, right? <laughs> or or your 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 uh, intention. Yeah. I mean, it's my intention, but I have no right to tell you you cannot do it. I'm excited that you're doing it. I've still been kicking myself in the fucking face for a week uh, that I did not jump on this. You know, I had this idea before the butter meter. Uh, <laughs> and, and we should talk about uh, FCC testing because, yeah. uh, you know, that is primarily why I did not do this because I didn't know, like, 
So ultimately, I had the idea, you had the idea, a hundred other people had the idea. In fact, if you search on eBay for the Metal V201X, you will see exactly the meter that I wanted to build, uh, right. which is using the 0.91 inch uh, OLED display and probably an Arduino Nano or some AT Mega 328 chip inside. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that, right? And and I didn't do it because of FCC testing because I was not sure how many things you could sell, right? But you had the nuts to go and do it and prove that like hundreds of people want it. And it's already like way more successful than anything I've ever done. <laughs> well, well, I should say, I should say I have not done the testing. Uh, what yeah, I understand. And you'll spend $3,000 and it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so FCC verification. I mean, I've been seeing numbers more like a thousand and I've uh, I've I've reached out to my local uh, testing uh, lab, accredited testing lab, um, asking them about, you know, the verification for uh, what the FCC calls unintentional radiators. Um, <laughs> yeah. Part 15B. Uh, and so um, I'm in the process of uh, getting that done. So you're in the you now technically uh, one thing the FCC says is you're not supposed to market a product that is not I know. Uh, at least verified. Well, the thing about that is that I'm in Canada uh, and I'm marketing on the internet and is that I don't think it's my fault that uh, an American happens to look at it from America. Right. Well, like that's well, not my fault. I mean, Kickstarter's right? in the U.S. and your primary market is in the U.S. The way I would have done it is say you're not marketing the object you're marketing like the kickstarter is to raise money for the fcc testing right uh right. and and that people are funding riveni labs uh rather than buying this product that you would like to uh get fcc tested that is how i would have covered my ass but i think so long as you have it tested before you ship them you know i'm i'm not going to call the fcc you know, I don't think uh, Gossin or Seconic might, but I think by the time anybody gets, you know, through it, like you will have paper in hand and I think all will be kosher. Um, yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. It's I mean, it, it's a real that's a real like chicken and egg problem, um, you know, because <laughs> it's like you you can't afford the testing without the money and you can't get the money without selling or at I mean, least raising money and yeah. you can't raise money without marketing and you, yeah. you know, it's so i mean the, so the I, thing yeah. i'm i'm really like upset about the way that this law is structured because what happens is that american small manufacturers are hit by it the most right because it's yeah. a mandatory year in jail and hundred thousand dollar fine and maybe more but at least right um well i think but, you have to cause violations to get that kind of punishment no, you and you not. have to be flagrant about it. No, no, no. The, the violation is is no testing, right? And then also marketing, right? And so you put in a waiver, right? You don't actually have the FCC test, right? But if the FCC ever comes to you, you have to produce the test from an accredited tester. That's um, right. Yeah. The, the deal is though, and and it's it's a mandatory minimum, right? So they can give you more, but they cannot give you less than a year in jail and a hundred thousand dollar fine. So. Please. Uh, yeah, it, it really pisses me off because the problem I'm is glad I'm in Canada then. Well, yeah, 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 but but Stay you're a neighbor. Hell in Canada. Canada. No, I would as long love as I don't to, visit. Yeah, America I would love to have again. you visit. Uh, I <laughs> I'll think be a wanted criminal. Have plenty of reason to visit and and to come see Camerdactyl Labs. I think you would like it. You know, uh, it would be nice if you were not arrested at the airport. Um, but you know what what gets my goat about this is 
um, it really winds up applying to American or American and Canadian small firms because there's a million plate like the the onus resides with the manufacturer, not the reseller. Right. right. So if you went and did this illegally, I could buy them from you and resell them and I would have no liability, which is wild. Um, because what happens is people are selling things made in right now. The V201X for fifty four ninety eight is made in China, Hong Kong. Taiwan, uh, somewhere, uh, was shipped from there. Right. Yep. But like the manufacturer is not subject to these laws. And because it's not like an import inspection, it's not, um, a reseller inspection. Like just by being outside of the U S you have a huge advantage selling small electronics to the U S market. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really like, I think something that, you know, Sony and HP and Samsung and Apple love this because FCC testing is not expensive to them, uh, but it keeps people like me and you <laughs> from competing. out of the market. It's yeah. a it's a barrier to entry that's that's so, really considerable. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I know we're not the um, you know electronics legal podcast, but I I would have like a suggestion if I were uh, in charge of this, which is I don't know if you know about Prop 65, which is California's state law about labeling anything that um, may have a material that the state of California is known to be a dangerous thing that, you know, might cause cancer. Causes or, cancer. Yeah. Right. right. And, I, and, I was under the impression it only causes cancer in California. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I think they did one thing right in this law, which is that if your company has nine or fewer or maybe fewer than nine employees, you are not subject to the law. And the idea yeah. is that, that, you can't cause that much societal harm with a two-person company, right? You that don't make that many products. You can't, I mean, you could give one person cancer, but, <laughs> you know, maybe a hundred, but you can't give the entire state of California cancer in the same way that, let's say, Charmin could with right. lead toilet paper. And, and so I think, you know, the FCC is protecting against us stepping on the airwaves so that, you know, we can have working routers and TV signals and cell phone signals. But, you know, ultimately, like if you're, one guy or five guys, you're not going to make that many products that you're going to take the internet down accidentally in Denver. You well, know? actually, that's a temporary state of affairs. I met somebody who worked in a plant that manufactured missiles and had fewer than nine employees uh, be- because they had so much robotics and they were so worried about uh, security. So I think it well, kind so of I, depends. I don't know if the number is nine employees or the number is like less than, you know, 50,000 units or 5,000 units or whatever. But I really think that, like, if the law applies to the manufacturer and not the seller or the importer, then, you know, it creates this really pretty shitty incentive to have things manufactured uh, by, you know, a Taiwanese company or an Indian company or a British company um, rather than an American company. And I think, you know, if... If they let you sell 500 units of this thing, which, you know, it's what what is this thing like a point zero one watt device? It's not going like you. I could just look at it and I know it's going to pass. Right. And so right. they could say, OK, Matt, you can make uh, 50 or 100 of these things before you have to have it tested. Or, you know, by the time you have two employees in your company, you got to pay for testing. But but they could let you make the money or market the damn thing before you know before it's to earn the money to be able to test yeah it's 
it's a real, I think, uh, oversight in the law and the way that the law is enforced. And, you know, I, I know a lot of camera builders and a lot of, um, a lot of us are, you know, electronics guys. Um, I, yeah. And it, 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 uh, it stymies American business, uh, but it also maybe helps large American business. Anyway, that's my rant. It certainly helps there's large sh- foreign business. <laughs> yeah. There's, there should be some way to figure out, uh, like kind of a bottom, a base cutoff. So tiny devices can cause problems. I know from my background in avalanche safety, the, that small devices can cause problems with something like an avalanche transceiver, uh, so sure. they had a lot of trouble if you're wearing your, you know, put your cell phone in the pocket next to the avalanche transceiver. It can, mm. you know, you can end up with an ineffective uh, safety system. And I think, you know, pacemakers and stuff like that, there's an argument that those kinds of things need to be really paid attention to. But surely there's some sort of rule of thumb that, you know, basically transmitters of a certain size, you know, used in a certain context are, ne- are just not a problem. Right. But they don't do it that way. They just, you have to test everything. Uh, Well, no, but the the deal is you only have to test the things made in America, right? And so the reason why is like... Oh, I understand the problem you're describing. Uh, And it's the same kind of thing with uh, that. What's that other one? IL approved, you know, what's that one? Uh, A lot of stuff. Oh, UL? UL, that's it. Yeah. UL approval is a similar kind of problem. Well, there's a lot of other things related to safety, like UL, for example, uh, battery-powered devices, I believe. Uh, battery-powered oh, and low-voltage devices are, are not subject to UL uh, regulations, for example, um, because they don't they don't possess the safety risk that something that plugs into the wall possesses. So there are, there are different sets of rules for, like, safety-related stuff. But this is, like, the FCC is only concerned about the communication side. Um, and so that's why wristwatches need to be FCC certified that they are not like if you have a quartz wristwatch, that's something that they deem to be a unintentional uh, transmitter or, well, or unintentional well, so emitter. But, but is there it is, ever really a problem? Is there is there such a thing as a quartz wristwatch that puts out I enough? I can design one for sure. I mean, if you if, <laughs> I mean, if you hold one near your guitar, you'll hear it clicking. You'll, you're like, you're, I, I've done that before. That doesn't people. sound very unsafe to me. So, I mean, here it's is... It's not unsafe, here is but the, it's interference. <laughs> the right. deal is that um, there are exemptions for things under 9 nanowatts, which this is not. Um, and, is there anything? Well, I, I, I can't imagine oh, devices under 9 nanowatts. Do you think yeah. under 9 nanowatts? Right, yeah, and then, yeah, and then right. the yeah. other one is some wristwatches are not, right? But um, the yeah. other one is 1.6 megahertz. If you're under that... Um, you're good, which like, you know, uh, clearly you're using, uh, an OLED screen, which means you're the OLED screen itself is probably a higher refresh rate than not, but also you're clearly using like an 80 mega chip, which is way faster than 1.6 megahertz. So I actually, before I went to the all analog butter meter, uh, went looking for, a vintage computer chip that ran at like one megahertz uh, to run an OLED screen, which like, you know, I could, uh, it was so backwards and uh, I eventually gave up. And uh, now there's two of these things on the market doing awesome. Um, But yeah, yeah, I mean, whatever, <laughs> you'll get it tested. You got cash now. Uh, it is a great product. People are going to love it. I hope so. 
<laughs> I mean, they, they have, uh, right? You've sold, what, 60, 70 grand worth of them already? Yeah, something like that. Uh, Canadian, 96,000. Oh, that's like uh, American yeah, that's, 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's worthless Canadian money. Oh, that's um, one of, well, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, um, one of the things I just, I, I, I just I, want to say that say, I think, Matt, your, your innovation here is the business innovation that you actually did it, which is excellent. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And um, let's um, sum this up by paraphrasing Chuck D. F the FCC. <laughs> <laughs>
something that I think a lot of people are pining for, and there's tons of people working on this, like you can see all over the internet, is is automated developing machines, like um, you know the the Jobos and the Phototherms of oh, the world. Oh, you're gonna beat me to that too. Well, it's something I've been thinking about. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I've been playing with some ideas, um, uh, about trying to simplify the machines to, to bring the price down. Like a 3D um, printer roll transport machine, like an Aritsu. Well, that, that'd be cool. That's a good idea. Thanks. No, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, I don't know. Like I some, think you should some... think about automating dip and dunk, you know, and, and there'll be the like, the, just like Dr. Seuss, the white hand on the scissor comes out the shipping and picks would, the thing. The shipping would be ridiculous, man. <laughs> it would be gigantic, yeah. Or, you, or you'd, okay. have to, you'd have to sit in the dark room with it the whole time, so you might as well just develop your film yourself by hand. And, so, and while you're at it, Matt, I want a <laughs> Subaru WRX that actually has a nice ride to it when I'm not... Um, so work on that as well. Well, that's out of my that's out of my pay grade for sure, <laughs> and expertise. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I have a huge question that I've been uh, thinking of since you uh, released this, um, and we started talking about you coming on the show. What is Riveni, and where did the name come from? And uh, tell us a little bit about your branding. Sure. So. Uh, Raveni is actually a word in Esperanto, which is a um, a made-up language, technically. No, uh, hang on a second. I just want to let you know, as soon as you said Esperanto, yeah. I am sure that Ethan started smiling. Am I right? Who, who started smiling? Ethan? <laughs> I don't speak Ethan, Esperanto. I'm, no, I, I actually, though, I am a founding member of the Esperanto oh. college I attended. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well then, but well then you know that es- that Raveni means <laughs> Raveni means return in Esperanto. Okay. Um, so the idea the idea of Raveni Labs is is sort of leveraging the modern technology that we have available now um, to kind of revamp some of the um, I guess the the problems that are arising with our uh, aging stock of cameras and and that sort of thing. Dinosaur cameras made with modern technology. A little bit like, go. yeah. So, so, so Ethan is on the side of like making actual cameras uh, more, um, and I'm You'll sort of imagining, <laughs> well, probably, but I'm I'm more on the on the process side. So I find I find it, you know, I mean, um, you know, some people like I, I mean, nobody likes the tedium. Some people, you know, they like developing and they like scanning and they like printing, but they don't like the tedium involved along with those processes, like waiting for your chemicals to heat up and sit in there agitating your tank for 10 minutes or, or whatever, or babysitting your, your, um, your process, uh, your, your little drum roller or something like that. So, um, I mean, I like a lot of the ideas are kind of, they're like convenience things that make some of the process a little bit, uh, more enjoyable or easier or, or better in some way. Or in the case of the light meter was, um, you know, one of the driving forces was adding or f- replacing the the bad meters in some of these old cameras. Like, um, you know, there's, I mean, I have, I must have 10 cameras with dead selenium meters uh, and they don't rely on that meter to work. That meter was just there as like a convenience thing. So the camera is fine, but um, 
you don't you don't have this like integrated solution anymore the way that the camera was when it was manufactured so uh it'd be nice to to bring it back and that's kind of that's the goal uh and so um Raveni, Raveni, you know the idea of of returning um you know bringing back film is you know i mean that's that's uh been the mantra of the community for a long time um, but now also bringing 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 new things in um, to kind of keep the keep the ball rolling, um, you know, sure. not just so not just bring it back, but move forward. So you're making prosthetics for geriatric cameras and bringing them back to life, or making them more youthful in their function. Yeah, that's a very uh, anthropomorphic uh, uh, view on it. But yeah, it's it's yeah, they're prosthetic. In this case, it's it's a prosthetic for a for a bum a bum eye basically uh, on, the, on the camera. <laughs> All right, cool. So um, thank you, uh, thanks for uh, for letting us know that. Um, shall we move on to what we've been doing? And um, uh, Nick, what have you been up to? Uh, so as usual, I'm still just tinkering with something I've been trying to do for a while, but I'm slowly getting more time and I'm getting parts assembled because I really, really want to start working with eight by 10 paper negatives. And I have some eight by 10 film waiting to be used. So I've been looking for a quick way to get where I want to go. And for me, that's Franken camera. So I found some parts that are going to speed up my eight by 10 camera a lot. Uh, I found the front end of an of a cambo eight by ten so a front standard rail and bellows and i already have all the lens boards and accessories because i use a cambo four by five and it's identical on that right. system and so all i have to do now is build a back end and there's reason in this which is i want something that's a little bit like a studio camera but a little bit easier to transport so the rear stand will be a box that contains the uh the bellows so I can just easily take the thing apart, put it back together, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. a couple parts to assemble and it'll fit inside a backpack that way. And I'll be able to take it more places. Um, anyway, so a little bit of woodwork and I'll have my eight by 10 running. So I'm pretty excited about that. Cool. Ethan, what have you been up to? Nothing. Nothing. How are the pens coming along? Uh, you talked about the pens in the last episode. How are those coming oh, along? Um, I <laughs> made a couple of really good pens and then a couple of pens that accidentally look like dog penises. And, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of kind of need to get back to cameras this week before uh, everybody else makes everything in my green camera journal. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think... That uh um the the quote that I made some uh, some pens that look like dog penises I think that not only should that be an out that should be like an out for the the whole podcast like we don't do another episode yeah. after that <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was perfect thank you thank you for that and the, I the apologize like, to the entire world about uh-huh. putting that in your brain yeah well so I have this pink filament that is too ugly to print any products in. <laughs> I, yes. I was trying to buy hot pink, which is awesome, uh, but I um, bought like a dull pink, and so I print all my prototypes in it, and it just stop. so Please. terrible. <laughs> you didn't make it better, man. You okay? So um, yeah, uh, so 
on that news, talking about uh, different colors and uh, painting and stuff like that, uh, I took one of the early uh, prototypes, well, actually one of the mid-range prototypes of a Kraken 612, and um, I have painted it in the uh, the livery, the color scheme of um, the uh, golf racing team, uh, auto racing from the 60s and 70s. Uh, I don't know if they still used in the 80s. I've seen it on an Aston Martin from the from the current uh, uh, century. But anyway, uh, it's an orange and, and light blue. Um, so uh, it's kind of like the light blue and pink that is, um, you know, Camerodactyl Pro. Uh, so what I found out is I, I didn't do any priming. I just kind of, uh, and I didn't sand anything down. I just painted right over it. And the finish is not the absolute best in the world, but it's okay. It really is an okay thing. So I'm going to start doing some painting of these things um, to get them a little bit more um, in the um, uh, um, to show what the potential is of this camera. And that was uh, and that goes back to uh, Paul Coulson's um, K-Pan um, Kickstarter from a while back. Uh, that really was the inspiration for this camera. Um, and so uh, so that's that's going to be something that you guys can do moving forward. And I'm also going to uh, do some priming and some uh, wet wet sanding and see what that really takes to get like a super nice finish on it. Um, Cameron, are you going to make a mustard yellow one? I am. You know I am. You, yeah. you absolutely. Uh, in fact, I will tell you uh, what he's referring to is if you look up K hyphen pan um, and Kickstarter, you'll go back to the original Kickstarter. That was the color that Paul Coulson did his. Um, and I will tell you that was probably 40 percent of my draw to that camera. Um, and then the other 40 percent was uh, knobs on both the supply and take up. So if you overshoot, I'm a chronic overshooter um, on um, my, um, you know, when uh, overshooting the numbers on the back uh, on the backing paper. So, um, you know, those that was one of the great appeals. So uh, and I have that that uh, paint um, out in the shed. So uh, so that's going to be coming up and you'll see that. And thank you, Paul, for for that idea. So. Um, uh, so that's one of the one of the things. So there's really an opportunity to customize this in the color scheme that you want and to give it a finish other than just raw PLA. Um, and I think that that's a big factor in the appeal for a lot of people. So um, so just, uh, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, one other thing I was out. OK, so. Just half a block from my house, they're building a bridge. Uh, they took out a bridge uh, that was essentially uh, box culverts um, over a, a, a creek, um, and they need to needed to increase the water flow um, during hurricanes in that area. So they're building a full, you know, trestle bridge going across it. And um, so I've been going down there. I've been taking a lot of pictures. Anybody who looks at my Instagram notes that, that I've been in this industrial area with a thing that looks like a bridge. And that's because they're building a bridge. 
And um, uh, so I was climbing around um, on some rocks, some uh, uh, infill area of the rocks. And I stepped on a rock that, that wobbled. And so I didn't go down. I didn't skin a knee or anything like that. But my Kraken 612 certainly did hit a rock at not, you know, not full drop. I, I, um, uh, I had it in my hand, but it took a pretty good shot. And did it Kraken? It, it did not Kraken. It, there was no Kraken of the Kraken. Um, um, now, I'm not, I'm not going to say that uh, plastic PLA is anything like metal, but maybe it's a little bit. It has some properties. There are two things. Okay, two things on it. It has some properties that there was a little bit of absorption, and there certainly is a mark, and there's a place where a couple of layers of PLA, um, you know, broke away from this. Um, so if you're painting this, you know, you could sand that down and and, uh, and repaint over it, or you can just leave it. Um, or and the other thing that that my model, my business model has that is the Ethan Moses business model, is that because you have the files, you can you know print another piece um, if you really do crack in the Kraken. It hit right where uh, on the bottom corner where the door is, and it hit more on the door than it did on the body. And um, you know so. Um, in eight hours, you can have a new back door, um, which I think is, you know, is a little bit of an advantage uh, to this type of um, of system. You you have all the spares you will ever need in those files. Um, so that that's something that I, I, I thought was kind of interesting. I'm also pretty, pretty happy. You know, if this had been a metal camera, I do believe I would have dented it. Um, and so it's not dented. Oh, well, it is kind of dented. There's a little chunk taken out, but it's, um, it, I think it's easier to repair. So, um, so I have a question. So, yeah. uh, if yeah. you, if I, if, if I put a, a, a crack or a ding in my, uh, PLA, uh, mm -hmm. Kraken, uh, what would you use if you were say, just going to, you know, take the auto body approach of putting some goop on it and smoothing it out? I take the auto body approach and put some goop on it and smooth it out. I think. No, I but think, what yeah, what product what product will stick to the PLA? I, uh, I would assume Bondo. Don't you think that um, you know your plastic uh, body modeling compound? Uh, Ethan, do you have an idea on that? Because um, I, I sorry, I my really mic was muted. That, yes, Bondo will absolutely work well. But yeah. I mean, even easier than like Bondo and sand and Bondo and sand is just print another one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I, like, I like fixing things. And, you yeah. and you know, one of the things that I loved about 1970s uh, Quebec car styling was that there was a lot of Bondo that was simply applied and left in place. Um, uh -huh. I grew up near the border of Quebec, and in that part of the world, cars rust really fast, and there's just not time to fuss. You just, you just slap some Bondo on and keep driving. Yeah. I'm from Minnesota, you know, same thing. Um, so yeah, 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 absolutely. That would work. Uh, should we just roll right into shout outs and, um, uh, I have a reminder and stuff like that. You guys, anybody but, have a book? Hang on recommend? one second. I or, don't have a book, but, <laughs> yeah. 
um, in deference to our guest, Matt, is there anything that we did oh, not talk right. about that you would like to talk about? Uh, no, I think we we covered everything pretty well, I think. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, so does anybody have a book to talk about? I not do week. not either. So um, what about shout outs? Uh, Matt, is there anybody you would like to say um, hi to, specific thanks to, or um, hey, go look at their stuff. It's really cool. I mean, I've had a really amazing response uh, the last couple of weeks from the community, um, like um, Camera Rescue and uh, Nico Yaseda, um, pushing my 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 stuff around and and getting it out to a bigger audience. Um, mm-hmm. The Raveni Labs Instagram's grown to like 800 followers in like two weeks, uh, which is like oh. the same number as my personal one in the last two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, that's that's entirely because of the like the 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 graciousness of the community uh, spreading the word uh, about my my Kickstarter. So I really appreciate that. Um, this won't air in time, unfortunately. But uh, if any listeners were at the uh, the photography show in Birmingham, UK, United Kingdom, uh, uh-huh. Steve Lloyd of Chroma Camera. Um, he messaged me and said that he's going to be attending there. He's got a little section in, uh, in one of the, the pod booths that they have in their analog section. And he's going to have, he has one of my units, uh, right now. So if you were at the Birmingham, uh, photography show, uh, you hopefully saw it, uh, at, uh, Steve Lloyd's chroma camera booth. Uh, and then actually, uh, Nico is going to steal it from him at the end of the show, uh, and, uh, and take it to take it on, on his way. So. Cool. I'm I'm jealous because um, I have a Kraken 612 heading to England. Um, it's going to Graham Jago of the Sunny 16, and he was going. His he said is if this arrives in time, uh, I'm going to take it to uh, the photography show, and I don't think it's going to arrive in time. So I'm I'm jealous that you have have something there um but uh yeah that those types of things happen so yes so, uh, uh, steve said uh steve said if you can get it here in time so i basically just sent it by like dhl <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, paid, I paid extra yeah. i figured i figured if it gets me one sale then it'll cover the cost of the shipping so yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly well i had a bigger box and it still cost yeah. me 70 bucks to send it so so yeah um uh okay uh let's say uh shout outs to uh for from nick nothing special right now okay ethan yo thanks nico okay uh okay and um uh and my shout outs um are to uh i'm a a uh, bunch of people, um, analog NMD norm. Uh, he and I are talking about some stuff, uh, and go look at his conversions of, um, uh, of Polaroid land cameras into six by nine and six by six, uh, cameras. Those are, are pretty interesting. Um, I'm not going to get your name, um, uh, because I forgot about it, uh, or forgot about it. I, uh, I haven't had a chance to look it up. I was in the middle of looking up and, and, and time has, uh, expired. But so one of the people asked me why six by 12, 
uh, and this is on Instagram, why six by 12? And I explained, well, you have backing paper. You can use two six by 12s. You can, you, you know, and six by 18 or six by uh, 17 is three six by 12 or six by six um, uh, numbers. And then I said, oh, well, you could do three um, six, uh, six, four, five numbers and you would get six by 13 and a half. And um, I'm I, I think I need to make a version of mine that's a six by 13 uh, camera just to to try that out as well. Um, so thank you. And um, hopefully I'll have your name. It's in. OK, go to mine. Go to my uh, Instagram, Graham Homemade Camera, and look at my posts in the last few days. And you'll, you'll find that um, uh, just a reminder, we are giving away. A uh, Kraken 612, and it's one of the earlier versions. And I could even do um, the uh, golf um, golf racing paint job on it if you want, um, and we can talk about that. Go to homemadecamera.com/giveaway, and you can register to give a, uh, for me giving away one of these cameras, um, and also. Um, uh, let, uh, uh, I'm giving away five sets of Holga masks. So uh, if you're interested, if you want uh, to register for both of those things, uh, just register twice and select the other item. If you don't know yet what lens you would put on your Kraken um, and, you know, uh, you know, you don't have to buy one until after you win, right? Um, then the... Um, uh, uh, just put TBD. Now we are going to do that um, uh, drawing on our next show, our very next show. So you need to be registered by uh, Ethan. When do we record next? Um, bu- 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 oh, hang on a second. Maybe it won't be the next show because I had said April 1st, right? So it'll be the show afterwards. But our next show, which is April 27th. No, sorry. 20 April 7th. <laughs> our 23rd. next show which is April 7th is our, um, uh, our second anniversary show. So we'll have great festivities. We'll probably have cake. And, um, you know, some other stuff. Um, okay. Anything else before we head out? I just want to say thanks for having me. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Appreciate you guys letting me come on and, and uh, and talk about oh, what's going on. Thanks for I coming know. on. Yes. Hey, before that, uh, what it's are your contacts? time. Where are we <laughs> going to find it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are we going to find you, uh, Matt? Um, uh, where can we uh, lots of places. Uh, best way um, would be www.reveni-labs.com. That's R-E-V-E-N-I. Uh, that's got links to Kickstarter. That's got links to Instagram. Um, you can follow me uh, all over the place if you want. Um, and the Kickstarter is running until March 30th. Uh, so uh, hopefully this airs before then. Okay. Uh, and where do we find your stuff? What do you or mean? No, I mean your personal stuff. Oh, personal. Uh, personal yeah. Uh, yeah. In Instagram, uh, Matt J. Beckberger. Uh, oh. So that's 
B-E-C-H-B-E-R-G-E-R, and Matt with two T's. Okay. And um, uh, you should, before the end of his Kickstarter, go to Raveni-Labs.com, click on the shop button, and you'll see uh, a coming soon with a blurred out image of something. And it, <laughs> looks, it looks like we've caught a picture of, of somebody coming out of, you know, um, uh, a massage parlor or something like that. It's all pixelated. And I can't figure out what it is. You just have to go there. Uh, <laughs> go there and check that out. Uh, Ethan, where do we find you? You can find me drinking away my sorrows at the local pub. Okay. And what is your local pub? www.cameradactyl.com. <laughs> <laughs> And Ethan at cameradactyl.com is his contact. Nick, where do we find your stuff? Oh, I don't know. I've got uh, Abby Nick uh, is my Instagram handle, and I use that my regular. That is A-B-Y. That is A-B-Y-N-I-C-K. Right. And I use my name, Nick Lyle, for Flickr, and uh, yeah. I do I do work on uh, uh Stuff that is, yeah, you know, I really try and avoid Facebook except for the group that the various podcast groups. Uh, so just there's no point in looking for me there unless you want to read, uh, you know, a little bit of political propaganda. But the Facebook, yeah. but private Facebook groups are pretty good. And all all the podcasts seem to have congregated around those. And they're actually a pretty yeah. lively place to learn things. Cool. Okay, whoever played the fanfare, play the fanfare, because I want to read my email address. What was it? In the, no? No? No fanfare? Thank oh. you! Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com is my email address. You can find me, Graham Homemade Camera, at, uh, on Instagram, and that is G-R-A-H-A-M spelled correctly. Um, and I, I am freezer of photons on, uh, um, on Flickr because Flickr's not dead. If you want to see pictures, go to Flickr. If you want to see little tiny pictures, go to Instagram. Uh, not that I don't like Instagram. I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Um, and pretty soon we're going to have, uh, yeah, probably. Okay. So by the time this goes out, um, frozenphoton.com frozenphoton.com no hyphens or periods or anything like that um and you can see uh stuff about the 612 there uh the kraken 612 and um so yeah let's uh thank robbie cribs for uh recording and allowing us to use our use the music thanks robbie thanks robbie thank you robbie and then we Everybody knows how to reach Ethan, of course. So we'll just yeah. leave that out. <laughs> crying, in his, crying in his beer at the local pub. <laughs> <laughs>